Good singing, church. Good morning, church. Call your attention to something with worship. I do this occasionally. You know, the very first hymn we sang, the Te Deum, is possibly the oldest uh, hymn we have in our hymn book. There may be one that's a little older, but this goes back probably to the 5th century. Uh, Augustine would have sung this hymn. Uh, there are more people singing this hymn, well, a lot of people singing this hymn in heaven. But when we get to heaven, they will have been singing this for like 1,600 years. They'll think, uh, why are you singing those contemporary songs like Amazing Grace and Great is Thy Faithfulness, that sort of thing. The old hymn. And then we've sung from the 20th century, Great is Thy Faithful, 21st century, with Chris Tomlin. And uh, all of that is to say... Uh, you know, if you are first time here and you say, I have been to a Presbyterian church and I know how Presbyterians worship, well, don't go so fast. Uh, we've lifted our hands, we've knelt, we've sung from all over the centuries. This evening we'll have a B3 organ and some drums. We've had a little drum up here today. We even had some clapping in the first service. You never know what's going to happen. And uh, hopefully it, ex- it uh, expresses the universal worldwide nature of God's church, and over the course of the Lord's day, that we worship in all kinds of ways, reflective of what we find in the Psalms. It's a wonderful uh, canon of worship that we have from the ancient past even into the present. Well, please turn with me talking about old things. We're still in Hosea. It's printed for you in your bulletin, chapters 12 and 13. One more sermon after this on this longer prophet that has been hard to study in some places. Hosea is pleading with the people of God to come back. And I try to give you a handle for the various books that we are studying, a shortened way to remember uh, things. And you can remember the message of the, of the book of Hosea is God pursues. God pursues. He pursues very unlovable people. You see it in the, in the 11th chapter, verse 12, at the top of your page there. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, Judah's unruly against God, even against the faithful one, the holy one. Both the north and the south, Israel and Judah, I've rebelled ungratefully against the gracious God who has saved them. You'd think it'd be easier for God just to wipe out sinful people and start over again. But God relentlessly pursues. How do you respond to a God like that who pursued us even to death on the cross with Jesus? How do you respond? Well, Hosea tells us in his in his uh, book and in these chapters in particular. We take up with chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read selective verses from both of these chapters. Please follow along with me. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day, multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel. 
and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him or talked with us there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales. He loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I've become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. Well, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. And I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. Now, chapter 13, verse 4. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. So I'll be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I'll lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open like a lion. I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Verse 14. I will deliver this people. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I'll have no compassion, even though death thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered of all its treasures. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord. That we would behold once again in this passionate plea and warning from your servant, Hosea. We would see the heart of the triune God, the Father who loved us, Jesus who died for us, the Spirit who is jealous for us to come back to life. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen. Last week, uh, Todd preached a masterful sermon on the pursuing nature of God's love. He preached from Ephesians 3, tied it to the themes we have been studying in the book of Hosea. And he said, as he was describing the love of God, as we look at it from the outside, that love of God pursuing unworthy, unlovable people, it could be called crazy. It's crazy love. That phrase, which I think is apropos, has reminded me of a great uh, work of cinematic artistry in the American canon called Mrs. Doubtfire. You may remember Robin Williams plays a a washed-up actor who, who, um, who, who has become as immature as his children. He's a lot of fun, but he's an irresponsible dad. His uh, wife, who is uh, ascending the career ladder, has enough of it and decides to divorce him and, and to take control of the children, to restrict his uh, 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 availability to them, to take custody of them. 
and, and it's killing him to be away from his children, had supervised visits and so forth. So he, so he, uh, he, he lands on a scheme as an actor with elaborate makeup and, and costuming. He passes himself off as an old British nanny and gets hired by his ex-wife so that he can be with his children every day. Well, it's hilarious, and then eventually the, his, his cover is blown, and she realizes what's happening and is horrified and decides to take full custody of the children and cancel his parental rights. And There's a very moving speech made in the courtroom before that judge who is deciding on whether or not to discontinue his parental rights. And you have to wonder, knowing the tragic end of Robin Williams and his horrific, painful childhood, if this was not to some degree autobiographical, as he said this to the judge, in regard to my behavior, I can only plead insanity because ever since my children were born, the moment I looked at them, I was crazy about them. And once I held them, I was hooked I'm addicted to my children, sir. I love them with all my heart. And the idea of someone telling me I can't be with them, I can't see them every day. It's like someone saying I can't have air. I can't live without air. And I can't live without them. Is that crazy? Is that insanity? Or is that just the love of a parent for children, the love of God for his people. Relentlessly pursuing those who are forever turning their back, running as hard as they can from him. This God, a hound of heaven, pursues us relentlessly and undeservingly. What is what should be the response? It's in verse 5, uh, uh, verse 6 of chapter 12. There are the three points right there. You must return to your God. You must maintain love and justice. And you must wait for your God always. Each of those points he illustrates with with a biblical example. From from, uh, an example from their past. Illustrating to them what Paul tells us in the New Testament, that everything in the Old Testament is written for our instruction. That's really what seems to be implied in verse 4, although it's obscured in our NIV translation here at the end of verse 4. He found him at Bethel. God found him at Bethel and talked with us there is the literal rendering. He found Jacob in Bethel, but he was talking to us. All of the Bible is written ultimately to all of us throughout the ages. So it behooves us to listen. The first thing we must do in response to this love, this loving God, is to return to him. You say, I've already done that once. No, it's a constant returning. It's a constant turning back. And by returning, we sometimes say repenting, turning back to the Lord is turning back to him in complete trust because we are all by default God wannabes. I want to take control. I want to be the master of my fate. I want to take control of my life. I want to manipulate my world so that it serves me well. Now, the biblical example is Jacob. He alludes 
to Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And he was very much the grandson of Abraham and very much the son of Isaac. That is, his faith was not very impressive, very, uh, very uh, unstable and inconsistent. And, and Jacob was born a twin. His twin brother named Esau for, for his redness. And Jacob was named prophetically too because he came out, he was second, second born of the twins. And he came out grasping the heel of Esau. And so they named him uh, one who grasps the heel or one who takes advantage or one who is an opportunist or one who is a manipulator. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard to fathom these days, but you can hardly imagine his, his parents introducing him the first day of school. Here's their one son named Red, the other one's named Manipulator. You can call him Cheat for short. It became a, a, a phrase, it became a saying. When you get swindled out of something, you got Jacobed. And Jacob lived that way all his life. He tricked his brother out of his inheritance. He he, he, he tried to manipulate and, and, and to get his wife. He tried to manipulate to expand his holdings. And so forth. eventually caught up with him because Esau was tired of it. And Esau uh, put a price on his head. And Esau was going to had every intention of marching against him and wiping him, his family, all of his possessions off the face of the earth. All along, God had been giving little speed bumps. So he'd been given some some roadblocks, trying to warn him, you can't live this way, Jacob. You must live in constant trust of me, constantly resting on me. But Jacob would not heed the warnings. Finally, on the eve when he's going to meet Esau, God gives him a vision, angels coming up and down a ladder. He's just saying, I am here. I am the God who spans heaven to earth. I come to you. I pursue you. You've been ignoring me, but I pursue you. Literally, God dropped another boulder. God dropped a boulder in Jacob's life to get his, he's got his head on one trying to get some sleep, which was, was uh, useless. Then an angel wrestles him. And you can just see Jacob trying to live the way he's always lived. Now I'm going to manipulate a blessing out of God. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm not going to let go of you until you give me a blessing. God effectively says, you don't have to hold on to me to give you a blessing. I've been giving you blessings. But I am finally, I am finally going to teach you a lesson that will force you to remember you must rest on me alone for your initial salvation and all salvation after that. He the Bible says, touches him in the hip, but he dislocates his hip. So that for the rest of his life in pain and agony, he must every step rest on his cane. He can never walk again without remembering every step I must rest on the Lord alone. Maybe he's doing the same with you. He does it with me. He throws cones. He throws hurdles. Sometimes he knocks your hip out of joint. And your first response is, how can you be a God like that? You say you love me. How can you do such a mean thing? It's because he loves you more fiercely than any being in the universe. He loves you too much to continue in your dehumanizing pathway. 
of trying to make it on your own, trying to force life, trying to provide for yourself and taking pride in that this is all my doing. Why should you live that way? He says, I love you too much to let you continue on. You know, that's the essence of revival. When we talk about revival, revivals that have happened throughout history, what do we typically think of when we pray for revival? Lord, send us a revival so you can straighten up all these wicked people out there. All these people I read about, all these people that are making it dangerous for me. Lord, send revival and change them. Revival never starts that way. And it never has. Revival has always started with the church repenting. I was just recalling a, 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 a revival from the 1940, 1949 off the coast of Scotland. The prayer meeting. And a young man stood up, read Psalm 24, closed his Bible, and he said, I can't, I can't help but think that God is bored with all this humbug that we are praying. How could we expect God to work among us unless we, first of all, repent and surrender our lives to him? And so he started confessing his sins and repenting of them. And others started doing the same thing. And then it spread to other people, spread to other people. And as the church was revived, other people saw the truth of the gospel and they came to Christ. That's the way revivals have always started. Isaiah, that scene that we, that we sang about in the first hymn, Isaiah 6. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean needs. Paul says, I wretched man that I am who shall set me free from the body of this death. Here's a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I am the worst. Paul is saying, I don't know about anybody else. But I know Jesus had to come and die for me. What is the opposite of revival? Self-justification. Oh, Lord, make other people as worthy as I am. Cause this world to be conformed to the greatness of our family and of this church and the way I live life. Oh, Lord, if they can only send revival and make people as virtuous as we are, revival will never come. As long as we are unshaken individually with our need for the saving and cleansing and sanctifying blood of Christ continually. Andrew Taylor, reflecting on that, on that revival, said, Every healing of any nation begins with individual consecration. So the first thing to do in response to the love of God exemplified in this passage and exemplified especially in the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us is to return to the Lord, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, it is to continually return to him. And when you do, 
When you are looking full in the wonderful, the beautiful face of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and overwhelmed with that love, you will say, what may I do for you? What is on your heart? What do you love? Where do I find you working? And here it is in the center part of verse six. It is to maintain love and justice. That's the focus of verses seven to 14. And it's shorthand for the three forms of love that we find throughout the Bible, and especially when Jesus, what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know, one time Jesus said, uh, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, uh, you uh, pat yourselves on the back because you, you're so religious. You go to church and you tithe things even down to your even down to your spices. But you've neglected the essence of the law, the weightier matters of the law, the true expressions of love that are are the point of the law, that is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice, according to the Bible, is giving every person what they are due as an image bearer of God. One handy way to get at that is to ask, what could I not live without? What could I absolutely not live without? You answer that question and say, I'm going to pursue that for other people who don't have it. It'll land you somewhere between justice and mercy. But technically speaking, it is to give every human being, every image bearer of God, it is to pursue proactively what they are due as image bearers of God. And then mercy, or love in our text here, is love that, love is, that is unrequired and unexpected. It is surprising. It's thought to be crazy. And then faithfulness. It's loyalty to God's commands. It's doing what he says because we recognize that we are his children. And he has the right to tell us what to do. And what he tells us is a good thing to do. Now, that is the essence of what God loves, maintaining love and justice. Then if we love him, we'll find ourselves pursuing those things. That's been the, that's been the characteristic of the Christian church throughout the centuries. The Christians, learning of the gospel, learning of the nature of God's love and his attributes in church, then go out into their society and say, how may I imitate his love and mercy, his justice to those around me in, the, in society, taking the, the riches that I have experienced in my relationship with him out into the world and seeing it changed in such a way that it's an answer to that prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that people might see these good things and glorify our father in heaven. That's been the impulse of the church always. It's been God's emphasis throughout the scriptures. First John 3, how can you love God whom you can't see if you don't love the one whom you can see when they're in need. James 1.9, this is the essence of true religion to 
welcome the widow and the orphan and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's Proverbs 11. God hates dishonest scales. It's Deuteronomy 27. God curses those who mistreat the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the trespasser, and the blind or those with physical handicaps. I read a few years ago about a sociology, now he's a sociology professor at, the, at Baylor. And when he was doing his PhD work, his research at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, he was in the archives of the library and he found a great, a, a large dusty atlas. He opened it up and found some curious things listed there, like uh, a record of schools and teachers and printing presses and hospitals and doctors. And these were all related to missionary work. Missionaries had started these things. And so he, he started asking the question. This is an atlas from 1925. He started asking this question. He, could this be a thesis? That conversionary Protestant missionaries, that there's a link between conversionary Protestant missionaries and the health of nations. So he did his research. He visited some of the places uh, that would have had their boundaries in sometimes different places at the time of this atlas than they are now. For instance, he went to Togo and Ghana, contiguous nations. And he said, why is it that Ghana has books on its shelves and universities and seminary and producing its own scholars and Togo is still locked in poverty and no books and no libraries? Could it be that the French prevented missionaries from going to Togo while Ghana had missionaries? Then he went to what, what, what had been a Belgian Congo and the French Congo. And why was it that the French Congo continued on in its human slave labor for uh, rubber, uh, production of rubber, uh, rubber? And why is it that in the Belgian Congo, as we talked about a number of weeks ago, why is it in the Belgian Congo those people were set free? Could it be because those missionaries were prevented from going to French Congo and they were allowed to the Belgian Congo? The Belgian Congo missionaries discovered those atrocities. They took pictures, sent it back to the Christians in Europe, and they demanded that it stop. He took all of that that uh, information, he fed it into a statistical model and he generated with computer modeling this confirmation of his thesis. Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. The gospel makes a difference in the way people live as it works its way out in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Isn't that what we hear from our missionaries when they come for our missions conference? We hear they're starting schools, they're conducting clinics, they're starting, uh, they're, they're starting public health programs, they're bringing clean water, they're advocating for justice and so forth, and we celebrate that. But isn't it ironic that in some parts of evangelicalism, to talk about those kinds of things and applying the gospel locally in such a way will get you labeled as a Marxist or a social gospel preacher. It's always been the impulse of the Christian gospel to go into every area of life 
and plant the flag of Jesus Christ saying, Jesus makes everything better. I've been in the ministry long enough now to know that those, the, the confirmation or the condemnation of the church and the society waxes and wanes. When I started ministry in the 90s, it was unpopular to, to say we take the gospel to social need. Then it became hip in the mid-2000s, and now it's unpopular again. It doesn't matter who affirms or condemns it. We have good news with infinite resources from Jesus Christ that we take into every area of life because our father, this is our father's world, people made in his image. He wants them not only reconciled in their souls, but to experience his shalom in every area of their lives. That's the way we respond to a relentlessly pursuing God. And then it is to wash, rinse, and repeat. It's to go back to where we started. It is to wait for your God always. It is to live in reliance upon his grace always. And it starts today. Yeah, the, 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 the final two examples in the last two points are from the Exodus story. The gift of the promised land. He reminds his people... Did you get yourselves out of Egypt? Did you get yourselves through the wilderness? Did you get yourselves into the promised land? Did you defeat all those giants? No, I went into Egypt. I got you. I took you through the desert. I took you into the promised land. And now you're patting yourself on the back, thinking that you've brought yourself so far, saying, I got it from here, God. No, he says, you must You're dead spiritually. You must acknowledge that. Acknowledge that you're like someone buried alive. But here's the good news. I'm the God of resurrection. And I declare to death that it will not hold you forever. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? I'm in the business of resurrecting dead people. Dead people have to recognize they're dead. You think about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Dead. Four days. Supposed to be stinking by now. Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, was not an Arminian. He did not think, I guarantee you, he did not think when he was raised from the dead, you know, let me tell you all what to do. I was sitting there, I was dead in that sepulcher. And one day I thought, I don't want to be dead anymore. So I heard Jesus knocking on the outdoor outside and I went up and rolled the stone away and Jesus could get me. Now you need to do the same. He didn't do that. He was dead. Jesus got to him. I don't, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't even believe on the Lord Jesus initially. Or you've wandered from him and you say, I don't know how to turn myself back. I'm so, I'm, I'm so wayward. I'm so controlled by other things, by substances, by other loves. I'm just spiritually dead. You're in the right place. Just say this, help me, Jesus. Make me alive, Lord Jesus. 
You're praying to the one who says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Death is no match for me. I read a few years ago this, the testimony of Kirsten Powers. She'd been a reporter for the Daily Beast. She's a reporter for a journalist with the USA Today. She's been at Fox in whatever situation she's in. However, she's been, on the, as politicians describe things, on the liberal end of the spectrum. In the early 2000s, she was dating a man whom she just, they, they were convinced they were going to marry each other. And then one day, and she, she said she had been raised in a quasi-religious home and, and, and been educated in an aggressively secular institution. And one day, this man she was convinced she was going to marry said to her the unthinkable. Have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? She thought, I really respected this guy before. Now I realize he's a quack, like all those other evangelicals. But she loved him so much, she agreed to go to church with him. Wouldn't you go to my church? It's Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. She went thinking, I'll expose these crazy evangelicals. But she was overtaken by the weekly preaching of Tim Keller and application of the gospel. One day she was traveling to Taiwan on an assignment and she said she had a dream. And somewhere between a dream and reality, Jesus showed up and said, I am here. Her boyfriend called shortly after that to tell her that he was breaking up with her. And he, she said that was very disturbing and unsettling, but not nearly as unsettling as Jesus showing up and telling me he was there. Because what are my friends at the Daily Beast going to think? With the the reference of a friend, she went to Kathy Keller, one of Kathy Keller's Bible studies, Tim's wife. And she said, one day, outside of that Upper East End location where where the Bible study was, she looked up to heaven and said, You are real. For weeks, she said she tried to deny it. She tried to put him away, but he just kept pursuing her like a hound of heaven. He was hot on her trail and everywhere she looked, she saw life. She became alive to the world around her. She could not deny it. She gave her life totally to Jesus Christ. Do you hear those themes? To return to the Lord. She's noted as one who has a heart of compassion. You may not agree with her politically, but she has a heart of compassion. She waits on the Lord always. That's the repeated, redundant story of God in his grace. It's what he tells you from his word this morning. It's what he reminds you of in this table. And he calls you today to get up, to give, to give up, quit striving, surrender your life totally to the crazy love 
of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.